Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 84, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Los Angeles teachers go on strike, and Remind sent out an email to teachers saying they may have to discontinue free tech service with Verizon customers. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why it's essential for students to see themselves in a book. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? I am great. Russ has the uh, evening off, and there's one story we're going to talk about, which I wish we had him here, but I'll be able to get your input on it as well. But right now, I want to talk about something that only you can answer. Okay. Are you ready for this? And by only you, I mean you being a teacher in the classroom. There was this um, thing that happened this past weekend on Reddit. Do you ever do Reddit in your... Check it out. Yeah. Um, there was this viral thread. And one of the nice things about Reddit, it's it's fairly anonymous. You know, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's 100% anonymous, but the FBI can find out who's posting stuff, but that wouldn't happen here. <laughs> so they, somebody went on there with a Reddit thread and was like, what's the one thing that you want your students to know that you'd never tell them in person? And the responses are pretty funny. Wow. So I'm going to, for this show and the next show, as we kind of open up, I'm going to read you some of the responses. And I want you to tell me like, I believe it or I don't believe it. Okay. Okay. First one. Yes. I put you in a group with the kid you have a crush on intentionally. I'm stuck here with you for 180 days a year. I want to see some drama. (laughs) Do you think that happens? Do you think a teacher would ever like intentionally mix groups like that, you know, knowing that there might be. That is funny if they do. I mean, teachers are definitely aware of who has a crush on who. You pick up on it. And so. You definitely notice, maybe, but that's funny to group them. (laughs) All right, here's another one. Uh, If your parents email a teacher and argue with them, the whole staff knows, at least in my school. That's true. True, okay, all right. Um, This is interesting to (laughs) me. I I shouldn't say at least in my school, though. I didn't say that. Right, right, but you believe it. But no, it's true. You do do talk to other teachers about that, yeah. Um, Let's see. If I know your name by the third day of a new school year, that means you're probably an a-hole. (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't use that word. That's, I'm, I actually, it actually spells um, the word out. I didn't but read you, it. Yes, you do. When you have a large amount of students, yes, the ones that you have to call their name often, that means you have to look down at the seating chart, and that means you know, you're know you saying their name. Yes. Okay. This, one, this one is kind of sad but funny. Um, my students are the reason why I'm second-guessing having my own kids. <laughs> That's funny. Now, I have... I, that is obviously doesn't pertain to me, but I have had a lot of younger teachers say, how do I make sure my child doesn't act like that? <laughs> and right. I say, spend time with them and correct them when they're young, when they start to act like that. <laughs> Last one for today. We have much better hearing than you assume. We just choose our battles as it pertains to inappropriate comments. That's true. I would say, I, I think so. Like, yeah. even like when I was managing a newsroom, I would hear stuff sometimes and be like, I didn't hear that. 
Well, you and know. I mean, kids just say the darndest things, and yeah. it's not like you're playing favorites or anything. It's just you do have to pick your battles because right. you really could not get much done if you stopped every little thing. Every wrong thing. Yeah, it's like watching a soccer game where the ref won't yeah. leave it alone. All right. Well, how are things going at your school? Everything good? Yeah, it's great. I got Teacher of the Month. Congratulations. Last, last month. I know. I was like, oh, you know, I've never gotten that. Ever? ever. And ever. Well, what gives? <laughs> Why well, not? I, well, I don't know. Yeah, we need to call <laughs> up some I'm... old bosses and try to figure this out. What is really neat about this is our school just changed it to where you vote on it. Like, instead of just the administrative leadership staff always choosing, they they said they wanted... So they sent us this Google Doc, you know, Google form, and... Oh, yeah, yeah. You just open nominate. Like, it's not a ballot. You just type it in. Mm-hmm. And I'm new, you know, I've only yeah. been there a semester, but... So um, so you were nominated by your peers? Were you chosen or nominated? I was chosen by my peers. Congrats. And it's the first one that we can, that we're voting on. It's the first time that we've switched to voting instead of just being chosen by, you know. And so that's neat because I don't think a lot of times that art teachers, music teachers, PE teachers, they kind of yeah. get overlooked a little bit when it comes to let that. Me, let me ask you this question. The Google form, did, was there a password to get into it? What? Was there when they when they sent you the link for the Google form? Was there a password or was it just a link? Well, it, it's tied to my school email address. Okay, and I was I thinking like logged into Google. I was thinking we might be able to manipulate the system going forward. If you just send us that link, we can get you like a hundred votes for the next month. Oh my gosh! <laughs> no, no, no. All right. No, I'm glad that I was like legitimately yeah. chosen. All right. Gosh. Congrats. Yes, and well Thanks. deserved. Well deserved. Thanks. Let's jump into the uh, teachers' lounge. Oh my goodness! So. It's, it's been over 30 years, but Los Angeles is having a strike right now with teachers. Yes, we should talk about this. This is a big deal. It's a big city. Yeah. And, the, you know, I was kind of like, well, what are they striking about? Which, I mean, clearly <laughs> you could give like somebody three guesses and it's always the same things, right? But um, it has cost the district like over $25 million just for a two-day strike at this point when we're recording. Um because of funding based on attendance. And so it is not just the teachers striking, the students are striking too. Ooh, like they're I, I not didn't attending this. school. Wow. So therefore the attendance is a third of what it normally is. And that affects the dollars that are awarded to the district. Right. So this so is exponentially having problems. Yes. It's, yeah. It's and not so just kids not getting It was really, really interesting, you know, read once I started bouncing around from thing to thing, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can look at it from all different ways, of course. So there's some parents that are saying, you know, this is tough because we're having to take off work, but they're happy to do it because they want to help be a voice for their child's teacher. Mm -hmm. So the children are also allowed to stand out on the picket line with the teachers and the children are saying, you know, that they... That, that everybody's treating them like grownups, like their opinion matters too. And so what they're asking for is smaller, you know, class sizes and better teacher pay and right. things like that. But one of the big, the big, big issue here is they're fighting against the growth of charter schools. That is the big strike issue. They feel like the charter schools in the Los Angeles area are pulling money. They're kind of being misallocated towards charter schools instead of the standard public schools right so um so are they expecting a resolution soon like from the stories that you've gone through well i don't think so because um they've been bargaining for 20 months on this issue and you know not threatening a strike but definitely saying like we're not going anywhere we're not folding on this so 20 months right and then they could not come to 
any sort of compromise or agreement um, that the teacher union has been, you know, the one doing the negotiations for them. And so I don't know. I, I mean, I know it's definitely costing a lot of a lot of money to the district and the right. teachers are saying, you know, that they've never, a lot of these teachers have never been on strike before ever in their life, you know, so they're like, this right. is such a hard feeling because we're worried about our students that are at school. Um, one interesting thing is the attendance that they did report would have been drastically lower, which a third of your attendance is pretty low. And right. that's devastating. But it would have been even lower, except for a few schools that are like 100% poverty or 80% poverty. Though, And it was a, a terribly rainy day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, there's like one school that's like 20% homeless students. And so those, um, they believe that those those children they Still interviewed them and they said, "Yeah, we're here because we we need food and right. we need shelter." Wow. Yeah. Well, also that's a whole other story. That's that's sad enough as it is. One thing I think we should point out, um, and I saw this on NBC News this morning: thirty five states and the District of Columbia outlaw striking for teachers. Like in. I can't say it enough. I, I really should invite a politician on to like explain to me what, like justify that, mm-hmm. like help me understand what the, I think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Like, well, it, I think they, the reason why is because it shuts down everybody. It affects everyone's profession. Right. Yeah. And, and and I get it. Like, I think there some rules are in place in terms of the protection of the community, police, mm-hmm. fire, stuff like that. I can, I can kind of understand that in that regard, but I, I feel like teachers should have the right to, to strike. And um, there's only 12 states that you can actually do this with. Teachers, teacher strikes are legal in 12 states and not covered in statutes or case law in three. So, you know, I don't know. I think it's kind of messy and yeah. inconsistent across the country. Well, I hope they can come to an agreement and everybody can get back to business as usual. But, I mean, you know, how how often do you hear us on this podcast and teachers and everybody say like something's got to change like it's got to change and and yeah you may be upset that you're losing millions you know millions and millions of dollars in funding based on your uh, your attendance but you know yeah you hate that it has to get to that as as predicted as i predicted on the show in the past mississippi is in an election year for statewide office and sounds like they're gonna do a pay increase for teachers this year because they want everyone to forget about the past three years that they wouldn't do it or cut <laughs> right. the budget and so forth. Um, and it's just, it's this habit that I've watched. Gosh, I've lived in the state for since 98, almost 20 years now, 20 plus years. And it happens every time, three years of little to no funding or budget cuts. And then that fourth year in the election year, oh yeah, we funded education right. and it's something they can use on the stump during the election year. Mm-hmm. So uh, you just got to pay attention all four years, not just the one right before you head to the polls. Um, did you hear about, is anyone talking about the Remind stuff in Verizon? Yes, that is such an ordeal. Yes. In fact, I thought about school status. I was like, thank heavens for school status because- right. That means, I mean, you are out. Like, you are not in contact with these parents as of now. From what I understand, I think you can still use Remind, like if the parents are using the Remind app, but a lot of parents don't. Like, in fact, I may or may not have the app on my phone, or I may not have the notifications turned on for the Remind app, so I rely on the text messages, you know, to to push that notification. So what Nick's saying is if if you are Verizon, yeah. Yeah, we need to, to, let's, (laughs) let's bring everyone up to speed. Basically, it hasn't happened yet. I think it's supposed to happen uh, January 28th. But Verizon, I think, to try to, I'm sorry, uh, remind, to try to put pressure on Verizon, sent out basically an email to all teachers saying, 
we are cutting off the free text messaging service for all people who are using Verizon service because they're about to be charged extra. Um, and it gets even messier. It's not really Verizon. It's another company called Twilio that Verizon uses to send out the text messages. And then there's like long codes and short codes. And this is where I really wanted Russ to, to better explain. But long story short, it's going to be about 11 times the cost for Remind with what Verizon's about to do to, to recover those costs that Twilio is charging them. And as a result, Remind saying we're about to pull the rug out from under all teachers and parents and no longer and send coaches, those messages. Yeah, and, coaches. I right. mean, after school yeah. activities, it, this affects a, a lot of people. And, and it's one of those things where I think people maybe are kind of like grumbling about right now, but when it actually happens in two weeks, it's going to be a big deal. Right. And I mean, I'm pretty sure Verizon's a really large company. Uh, I, think, I mean, that's I a lot I think it's the of, largest phone provider right, in the country. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm a Verizon customer, so I will be affected in getting messages let's from... Let's be honest. You didn't sign up for the Remind anyway. <laughs> no, well, I usually try to. It's season to season. <laughs> I, I often will be like, oh, well, hey, when's that next game? Um, but, you know, it, it, it could affect a lot of people. It will affect a lot of people it if does, it actually yes. happens. Now, you were saying um, you thought about school status. I did. From, from what I understand, and I don't want to speak for them, but from what I've been told, they use a different code. Like there's long codes or short codes or they don't use codes or whatever. They aren't expecting to be impacted by this. So, I mean, that puts them in a good position yeah, for, no, for that's you know, their clients. You know, but. and I really do think that teachers got kind of in the habit of using Remind. And mm-hmm. so then when school status offered it, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we hate well, we to have Remind. to switch to that because yeah. we already do Remind and this is right. what we do and this is what parents are used to. But I think that... Uh, school status I mean, because it's already there we yeah. already have it you know we're well, just not you know maybe using it not everybody is and now right. they will well and their school status i think is in like seven states you know so mm-hmm. there's a lot of states that are not even in so not everyone's going to have access to it of course i'm sure they would you know bring somebody online if they wanted it mm-hmm. but um they really their texting was always you know one-to-one it was teacher to parent mm-hmm. but just recently they started this their whole broadcast text texting, texting right. which is basically what reminds doing and, and i agree with you you know I'd be curious, your district would be one where they might, you know, teachers might say, oh, well, well, I guess I got to use, you know, right. the broadcast side of this and instead of using Remind. Right. So um, that'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. And uh, definitely keep your eye on that. Are you uh, ready for the uh, bright idea? Yeah. We are talking to a college professor and author. She wrote Teaching Reading with Young Adult Literature. Um, but specifically, we're talking about the importance of providing books to students where they can see themselves in the book. Oh, awesome. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment is an associate professor of English education at St. Louis University. Jennifer Bueller is also the author of Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Complex Text, Complex Lives. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm very excited to have you because I was recently reading an article published by the National School Boards Association where you had a quote that really grabbed my attention. And what you said was, quote, what does it mean if you never see yourself in a story? It's dehumanizing and it invalidates your existence. How common of a problem do you think this is? I think it's an incredibly common problem because uh, in our schools nationwide, uh, very few teachers uh, writ large, have moved from the Western canon to um, a more diverse array of literature offerings. It's just a really hard shift to make, in part because our curriculum remains pretty traditional nationwide. 
Uh, it requires teachers perhaps to be reading out of their comfort zones and exploring new authors and new texts. And it, in, it involves getting parent and administrative support. You know, making that change is a Herculean effort for a lot of people. Uh, money's a factor too. To bring different kinds of books into the classroom, you have to be able to pay for those books. So I think a lot of teachers want to make this change, but they're maybe not sure how. But in the end of the day, uh, too many kids are still feeling like they're outside of the story of literature. Yeah. And before we get into like how we could make the change, what let's kind of draw the picture of the fact that it that it is a problem. I, mean, I saw one um, stat, I guess it was a survey of librarians, and um, they said it's very difficult to find books that portray characters with disabilities, um, native uh, people, and uh, English language learners in books. So who else do you think is is getting left out in literature? Um, I think kids that live in poverty are often left out. It's becoming more common to find protagonists that are young people of color, but um, young people of color uh, aren't the only marginalized group in the country. Um, kids who are poor, um, who don't experience sort of suburban privilege, um, middle-class comfort, like those stories need to be told too. And those, those kids aren't only living in the inner city. So that's the first category that would come to mind. What did you say? You said students with disabilities, English language learners, Native right. American students. Definitely those are also um, much harder populations to find stories about. So I think we're hitting on a lot of the major ones. Do, do you think that the books don't exist or they just don't find their way into the classroom? I think the problem is actually connected to both of those issues. There aren't enough books that depict the experience of, you know, diverse human beings. Um, but even as those books are becoming more common, it's not always easy for them to find their audience. That that is a, you know, that's connected to the marketing departments of publishing houses, the amount of advertising budget that's devoted to those books, and um, the willingness of bookstores and librarians to stock them. So there are all kinds of connecting issues here that play a part in you know books becoming visible and stories of this kind becoming visible. I didn't say this at the top of the show, but you've taught high school as well. Do you think teachers are cognizant that this is an issue? Are they aware that you know they have children in their class that really don't have books that reflect them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of teachers want to be more responsive to their students, but they maybe just don't have the resources or don't know how to begin the process of turning the tide in their classroom, you know, turning the tide in terms of the curriculum that they're able to deliver. So um, anytime you're a teacher and you see kids in the back with their heads down or kids who are fake reading, which is a term that I learned from Penny Kittle, who's a national leader in English education. You know, it's pretty demoralizing and heartbreaking as a teacher because you know you're failing in those moments. But figuring out how to stop failing can still be hard. What do you do with the kid that's fake reading in the back of the classroom? I think you talk to them. I think you um, ask them what's getting in the way of them connecting with the story. I think you then also do a lot of soul searching on your own part. Like, what am I offering? What am I not offering? Where, you know, who are the voices that aren't being represented here? Where are the silences in this curriculum or in this classroom? Um, and, you know, kids are smart. And if you ask kids 
what's not working or what would make a difference, they can tell you and they can give you a lot of insight. But those can be intimidating conversations because you're vulnerable in those moments when you're asking kids to talk with you about what's not working. But I think you have to let yourself be vulnerable if you really want to become a more, you know, powerful and effective presence in the classroom and in their lives. And you you kind of answered this question I'm about to ask you, but it's slightly different. It, should a teacher be overt with their class about the challenge that they're having to put these books that are more diverse in their classroom? Should they should they have an open discussion about that? I think they absolutely should, because I think um, most all of us human beings appreciate honesty. And if you're willing to be honest with the kids about your awareness of the problem and your desire to serve them better and affirm them more, and then if you follow up that confession with uh, asking them for advice, they may know books that you as the adult don't know. Uh, They may know other popular culture media forms that you don't know that could somehow in a roundabout way connect back to books. So kids can be amazing resources if we allow them to be. If you're a teacher, what are the obstacles in the way of of bringing a more diverse collection of books to the classroom? So I touched on that a little bit earlier because I've I've lived these obstacles myself. and um, And I often, when I'm able to talk to teachers, I'm often aware of... um, what I said before, their desire to make a change, but the sort of uncertainty about how to proceed. Um, So here's a list of the obstacles. One is inertia and tradition. If you work in a system where the same books have been taught for years, if not decades, it's really hard to make the case that there's a problem with that. Because it may not be that those books in themselves are bad, but it's just that they can't meet every reader's needs. They can't do all the work that literature should be able to do in the lives of kids. And can I, can I stop you right there for a second? Can you sure. give me an example of a book that like everybody is reading in high school that meets that criteria of where it's just stale and no one's really relating to it, but you still just kind of have to, to push through it? Well, I'll name the book and this will, you know, it'll elicit different reactions for different people. And it may not be that the book is stale, but I'm thinking of To Kill a Mockingbird. That is one of the most commonly taught books in the secondary curriculum. It's a book that a lot of America continues to be in love with. I mean, it's a beautiful story about some really um, uh, affectionate compelling characters, you know, a little girl, Scout, and her dad, and the the neighbor down the street, Boo Radley, um, Calpurnia, the housekeeper, Tom Robinson, who, who's a victim in the story, you know, and Atticus is a hero. Atticus stands up against his town, and he defends uh, Tom Robinson, and that's not a popular choice. But at the end of the day, that book represents white America's vision of racial progress and and justice. And it's a really different thing to get a story that tells um, or asks questions about racial justice that are not, that's not coming from the white perspective. Um, Atticus is a white savior figure. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that that kind of story makes a lot of teachers feel really good. Um, because the majority of teachers are white, but um, 
It's an old story. I mean, that book was published in the 60s. There have been so many books published since then that are more contemporary, more relevant, um, more cutting edge. And so why not teach To Kill a Mockingbird alongside a lot of other more current books? It's a great idea, but teachers may then wonder, well, which books and how do I get the money to pay for those books? And what if these books are controversial? Am I going to get blowback in the form of censorship or book challenges? So this is the kind of cascading set of doubts or worries that can get in the way of change. Do you have any tips for teachers on navigating two things? One, uh, you kind of talked about like the trouble of introducing new books to the school, getting that past the administration and the parents. And then two, how do you just financially get new books? Mm -hmm. So I think two things come to mind in terms of introducing the problem to administrators or the, uh, the idea of changing up the curriculum. You know, you need to know the books really well that you're interested in championing. Um, you have to have your own argument that is appropriate to your own educational context for what change is needed and why. And this, too, can be a really heavy lift because it's a lot easier to um, read someone else who in, is in education who inspires you and try to use their vision or their argument to make the case for your own setting. And it certainly helps to have those models. Um, but at the end of the day, as an individual teacher, I need to know what's right for my kids in my school building, in my community. And I need to have done the homework to have gone out and explored newer literature and sort of had both an intellectual and a kind of gut check on whether these books seem like they would be a good fit for my students. So those are the kinds of things that I would suggest teachers think through or start working on um, as they imagine going to their administrator or their curriculum chair and, and talking about these things and making requests for change. Um, you know, just bringing to the attention of the administrator or the curriculum chair, like I have a lot of kids who are checked out in my class and I want to do something about it. Can we think together about what might be appropriate next steps? Like that might be another way forward. But you asked me the second part, which is about money. Um, you know, that's that's always going to be a sticking point. But a couple of things come to mind on the, the sort of lowest level. When I was a classroom teacher, we had vending machines in the school building and um, in the state of Michigan, every um, aluminum can or plastic bottle had a 10 cent deposit attached to it. And mm -hmm. that's still true. So when kids threw their um, empties in the recycling box, you know, I made a point of saving those and taking them to the grocery store and getting the cash back and using that as a book fund. That's I mean, that's cool. that that's so silly and it only comes up to 20 or $30, you know, every month or so, but that's still 20 or $30 um, on a much broader and sort of national, more visionary level. I mentioned the name Penny Kittle earlier. She is a former high school teacher in New Hampshire. She's now working with college students, but she's written a number of books that have been um, highly influential in, in the field of English education. One of them is titled Book Love. And Book Love was about the problem of kids' fake reading in high school. And it was an argument for offering choice and more contemporary literature in the high school. It's a wonderful book. And Penny Kittle established a foundation called the Book Love Foundation 
that awards, I think, about 10 grants per year to teachers around the country who apply for them. And those grants consist of several thousand dollars to assist teachers in building diverse contemporary classroom libraries. So that's kind of one extreme to the other. Right. And there's a lot of um, other examples in the middle. But there are there are possibilities out there, but you have to kind of develop an entrepreneurial spirit. Of course, it doesn't hurt to get your administrator on your side who can sort of set aside actual budget funds to support you. But if you have to do it on your own, those are a couple of ways. You said um, something contemporary literature. Um, You actually, I mentioned, wrote a a book called Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Young Adult Literature. Um, And can you tell me a little bit about your passion with young adult literature? Is, Is it getting the respect that it deserves in the classroom? Um, the, I mean, the answer is yes and no. And I always hesitate if I make a blanket statement like I made at the start of the show about nationwide what teachers are or aren't doing. There's all kinds of nuance in these in these sweeping statements that I'm making. But but with regard to young adult literature, I teach a college class now on young adult literature, which um, fills to the to the max every fall and uh, has a waiting list every fall. So that's just an incredible privilege that I get to do that. Right. But um I taught young adult literature in high school as well. And I can tell you that I continue to say to my students here at St. Louis University every fall, you have to be ready to make the case for young adult literature pretty much no matter what setting you're in. I have to make the case for these books at the university. Um, High school and middle school teachers have to make the case for these books in their settings. And it's um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, let me tell you, for every critique of young adult literature, I can come back and give you an argument about the beauty of these books, the artistry, the sophistication and complexity of them and their relevance in the world. But, you know, there's two things working against us, I guess, with young adult literature. Um, One is that people don't know what the books contain. They think of the books as um, all being kind of manifestations of Sweet Valley High or the Babysitter's Club, which are 1980s series. Or they think that young adult literature is nothing more than like Twilight or Harry Potter, which, you know, all of these books have value to somebody. But there's a lot more to the field than those easy kind of identifiable titles. But the other part that I think makes young adult literature always have um, sort of a burden attached to it is books about teenagers, you know, speak to the experience of teenagers in the world. And teenagers are a population that struggle to earn respect from adults and the society at large. I think a lot of people have ambivalence about their own adolescence. You know, they remember the pain and the embarrassment of being a teenager, the the struggles that teenagers go through. Um, And so going back to that can be really hard for people. And, you know, it's just easy to say that teenagers are, um, hormonal, impulsive, not deep thinkers. Well, none of that stuff is actually true. Teenagers are as complex as are the books about them. But people sort of need to be pushed, I guess, to believe it. And if you don't have a teenager in your own life, it's easy to think poorly of teenagers. Mm -hmm. Teenagers can be scary. Um, So, you know, there's a lot of stereotypes to be broken down here, both about the kids and about the books. Let me, I'm curious, and I want to, I want you to challenge um, myself and our listeners. You mentioned there's some YA books that are complex. Can you give me 
one title of a of a YA book that's that meets all the criteria of complex literature and could compete with just about any other book you put in the classroom. It's always hard. It's like choosing your favorite child. Right, but let right. me tell let me tell you about a book that I've taught ten ten times now at the universities. There's one novel that I've taught every year I've been a college professor. The book is titled We Were Here. The author's name is Matt De La Pena. This book concerns the experience of three kids who meet because they're all assigned to live in a group home. They're all caught up in the juvenile justice system. So these three main characters have all done something wrong that's caused them to run afoul of the law. And they're all now living in a group home instead of in straight up juvie. So the main character's name is Miguel. There's a character named Mong, and there's a character named Rondell. Um, so one kid is African-American, one's Asian, and one is um, biracial mm-hmm. with Mexican heritage. So these kids meet. They don't like each other. Um, they don't like where they are. They don't like who they are. But for a variety of reasons, they make a plan that they're going to run away from the group home. They're in California, and they're going to journey down to Mexico with the hope of starting a new life. And on the way, you know, it's a journey story. Um, you know, it, you know, in the same way that the Odyssey by Homer is a journey story. Um, they're going to find out a lot of things about themselves and the world and how they're viewed by the world. They're going to find out a lot of things about each other. Um, and they're going to reckon with their identities, um, being labeled a group home kid and what that means for your sense of self and your, your fate in life. And once you have that label put on you, can you be anything more than a group home kid? Um, meanwhile, the, the main character who's Miguel, oddly enough, before they leave the group home, he steals a bunch of books from the group home library and they happen to be works of classic literature. Hmm. One of, one of them is the color purple. One of them is the catcher in the rye. One of them is of mice and men. And so this group home kid who could easily just be kind of put in a box as a stereotype, he's reading these, these classic works and he's, he's thinking about the experience of the characters in these books and he's connecting their experience to his own. So it's a novel that's written in vernacular. Um, there's a lot of slang, there's profanity in the book. Um, these are kids that are not uh, traditional heroes, but boy, are they heroic, dignified, complex, amazing human beings. And the fact that we get to hear their voices, their authentic voices, not a cleaned up standard English version of their voices. It's a way to get to know their humanity. So that's, that's the book that always comes to mind first, because it's one that touched me the first time I've read it. And it continues to resonate with students every fall in my class. Uh, I'm sold. I, I really appreciate the recommendation, and I'm sure that those listening do as well. And I, I've never even heard that title, so I'll definitely have to check it out. Um, That's great. Should a teacher play matchmaker with books? Should it, is it appropriate for a teacher to say, you know, you'll see yourself in this book, or should they just kind of put the books out there and let students find that on on, the, on their own? I think both things should happen. So my answer is yes. Teachers absolutely should play matchmaker and the teacher should be the one doing that because even though librarians are also exceptionally skilled matchmakers, teachers know readers 
they're just able to know teen readers in a deeper way often than a librarian just because of um, more frequent contact. Not to say that a librarian can't develop a deep relationship with a teenager, but if you're an English teacher, you're seeing kids every day. And so you're getting to know those kids. And if you are also knowledgeable about the newest books that can speak to these kids, who better than to play the part of matchmaker than you? Um, but secondly, you can't know everything about every kid and you can't know what in a story is going to resonate with an individual kid. So I learned from another leading English educator. Her name is Donalyn Miller. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called The Book Whisperer. Right. Um, Donalyn talks about putting stacks of books in front of kids or organizing books into bins where the science fiction books are in a bin and contemporary fiction is in a bin and romance is in a bin but also just stacks because um, if you put a stack in front of a, a student or a group of students, they themselves can have greater ownership and agency if they're able to sift through the stack and then make the decision. But there's still matchmaking work that's happened because somebody had to build that stack to begin with. Jennifer Bueller, we appreciate your time. Um, if you uh, don't mind, do you can you share maybe a way somebody can catch up with you? You seem pretty active on Twitter. Do you mind sharing your, your handle there? Yeah, I'm more of a listener than a speaker on Twitter. Yeah, you, but I you retweet a lot, lot, I see. Yeah. I retweet a lot. I really enjoy and um, benefit from the community that I find on Twitter. So, yeah, my Twitter handle is at Prof Bueller. So it's Professor P R O F. And then my last name, Bueller, B as in boy, U E H L E R. That's the best way to get in touch with me. Well, Professor Bueller, are you ready for our pop quiz? I'll give it a shot, yeah. All right, first question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? I have to say English. It's the place where you can express yourself and you can find inspiration in how other people express themselves, so English. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? Um, the way that school can provide a lens for reading the world. I think every discipline should be um, asking itself, how can the content that I'm teaching help kids understand the world about them more deeply? What does every child deserve? Respect. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Respect. What's the best gift to give an educator? Um, support and empathy. Uh, the work of educating kids is really hard and it's really complex. And I think most teachers are doing the best they can. They just don't always know what they don't know or they don't have time to fix the things that need to be fixed. So a little compassion goes a long way. Which teacher changed your life? A lot of teachers changed my life, um, but the one that comes to mind first was my sixth grade science teacher. His name was Bill Beasy. Um, he uh, loved us as human beings and told us that he was um, putting aside the textbook and the work that we were going to do every day was going to be hands-on, and, um, and that was true. And, and he loved us as kids and um, made our learning fun and meaningful and challenging. And last question, pen or pencil? Pen. All right, Jennifer Bueller, we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this very important subject. Uh, again, uh, again, the book is Teaching Reading with YA Literature, Complex Texts and Complex Lives. If anyone wants to check that out, 
And uh, you can also find uh, Professor Bueller on Twitter at Prof Bueller. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismissedpodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortega. Go, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.